Good morning, everybody. Just about a week. It's good to be together, and it's lovely to have the sun shining again. Maybe spring is on its way, or maybe me saying that will scare it off. I hope not. Our call to worship is a story that Jesus told. There was once a man who had two sons. He went to the older one and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. Yes, sir, he answered. But he did not go and work. Which one of the two did what his father wanted? And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, thank you for this new day and for the freedom we have to meet together to worship you. Thank you for every person who is here today. Each one of us different and every single one of us made in your image. Thank you for the promises you have given us in the Bible, especially those which assure us of your never-ending love and your boundless grace. Thank you that you know us inside out and can see what we hide from one another, even what we hide from ourselves. And yet your promises still hold true. You still love us. Forgiving God, we are sorry that sometimes we say, what we, we say we will do something and then we don't. We are sorry that sometimes we make a promise and we don't even try to keep it. We, sorry, we are sorry that sometimes we are so busy looking at other people's faults and failings, we miss our own so in the silence, we confess to you now the sins of which we are aware, whether they are our own as individuals or collectively as your people. Healing God, you promise to forgive all who are earnest in their attempts at repentance restoring and renewing them for continued discipleship and service. As we receive your forgiveness, we also recommit ourselves to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. First readings from Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 to 22. Now then, Joshua continued, Honour the God and serve him sincerely and faithfully. Get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, and serve only the Lord. If you are not willing to serve him, 
decide today whom you will serve. The gods your ancestors worshipped in Mesopotamia or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are now living. As for my father and me, we will serve the Lord. The people replied, We would never leave the Lord to serve other gods. The Lord our God brought our fathers and us out of slavery in Egypt, and we saw the miracles that he performed. He kept us safe wherever we went among all the nations through which we passed. As we advanced into this land, the Lord drove out all the Amorites who lived there. So we will also serve the Lord. He is our God. Joshua said to the people, But you may not be able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God and will not forgive your sins. He will tolerate no rivals. And if you leave him to serve foreign gods, he will turn against you and punish you. He will destroy you even though he was good to you before. The people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to them, You are your own witnesses to the fact that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they said, We are witnesses. Then get rid of these foreign gods that you have, he demanded, and pledge your loyalty to the Lord, the God of Israel. The second reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. That's Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. The rich man. As Jesus was starting up on his way again, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Do not cheat and also respect your father and your mother. Teacher, the man said, ever since I was young, I've obeyed all these commandments. Jesus looked straight at him with love and said, you need only one thing. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the rich and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, gloom spread over his face, and he went away sad, because he was very rich. Jesus looked around at his disciples and said to them, How hard it will be for the rich people to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were shocked at these words, but Jesus went on to say, My children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is much harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of his needle. At this, the disciples were completely amazed and asked one another, Who then can be saved? And our final reading is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27.
Peter's declaration about Jesus. One day when Jesus was praying alone, the disciples came to him. Who do the cry who do the crowds say I am? He asked them. Some say that you are John the Baptist, they answered. Others say that you are Elijah, while others say that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you, he asked them. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are God's Messiah. Then Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell this to anyone. He also said to them, The Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He will be put to death, but three days later he will be raised to life. And he said to them all, Anyone who wants to come with me must forget self, take up their cross every day and follow me. For whoever wants to save their own life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. Will people gain anything if they win the whole world but are themselves lost or defeated? Of course not. If people are ashamed of me and of my teaching, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I assume, I assure you, that there are some here who will not die and they have seen the kingdom of God. And the final section is uh, verses 51 to 62, which is in page 90. Uh, A Samaritan village refuses to receive Jesus. As the time drew near when Jesus would be taken up to heaven, he made up his mind and set out on his way to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him and went into a village in Samaria to get everything ready for him. But the people there would not receive him because it was clear that he was on his way to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do not want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then Jesus and his disciples went to another village. As they went on their way, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie down and rest. He said to another man, follow me. But that man said, sir, first let me go back and bury my father. Jesus answered, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Someone else said, I will follow you. Sin, sir, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said to him, anyone who starts to plough and then keeps looking back is of no use to the kingdom of God. Here endeth the word of scripture. Okay, quick test. Who was listening? What was the deliberate mistake that Willie made in the first? Give to the rich. Yeah, give to the poor. That's okay. 
It just was a good test to make sure we were listening, Willie. So thank you for that. Just didn't want anybody to think the Bible had changed overnight. When a person is training to be a minister, or in a lot of parts of Britain and overseas, to be a lay preacher, they will spend a lot of time thinking about the task of preaching, about writing and delivering sermons week by week as they endeavour to nourish and nurture the people of God for their lives of discipleship. As part of that training, careful attention is given to such things as different styles of preaching, ranging from narrative, storytelling, via exploratory, the kind of thing that I usually do, to expository, line-by-line explanation. And through all of this, the trainee is told to ask themselves one question. What am I trying to do? What is the purpose of this sermon? What is it that I think that God is trying to achieve as I speak? Expressions like preaching the word or preaching the gospel are often understood quite narrowly as preaching for an evangelistic purpose or preaching for conversion. And those are valid and essential aspects for preaching. But it can never be the only reason we preach, purely and simply because most people in most churches have already at some point made up their mind to follow Jesus. And they need to move beyond what St Paul would call milk to solid food to go from being told of their need to change to what that means in their lives. When I was learning about preaching, we were offered two main functions for a sermon. One is the kerygmatic, which is roughly speaking, the preaching for a response. And the other is the didactic, preaching as teaching. And each of them is vital to the act of sermon delivering. But it may be the case that one or other will be more evident in a specific sermon. Not every sermon has a tick list that says, right, I must have a conversion, I must have a this, I must have a that, I must have a the other. And that shouldn't surprise us, really. If we step outside of Sunday worship and think about things like the Alpha Course or the Emmaus course, or the Christianity Explored course, or any other of a myriad of evangelistic tools, they don't do conversion every week. They have an aspect of learning, an aspect of growing, an aspect of deciding. Irrespective of whether a sermon is specifically charismatic, or didactic, or a mixture There is a question that every single one of us, you and me, should ask ourselves at the end, every week. And that is, so what? Today is a bit of a so what sermon. We've just spent a number of weeks looking at doctrine. And if I'm honest, that's basically been a didactic series a learning series, a a series of thinking about stuff. If we've glimpsed something more of the nature of God, so what? 
If we have a new insight into Jesus Christ, so what? If we better understand grace, what difference does that make? So what? If we believe that atonement is important, so what? Now, it could be that you think that the so what should be quite simply an altar call to them. You know, those other people who haven't made a profession of faith yet, because that's surely what it's all about. But you see, that misses the point, because whilst that is important, there's a so what for each and every one of us. We have to weigh up what we've heard, and we have to decide what next. Whether we have been following Jesus for decades, whether we're still trying to work out whether we want to follow him, everybody here has come today to listen, And everybody here has a choice. What are you going to do with what you hear? Because as we listen for God speaking to us in scripture and through my thoughts, we listen to make a response, a choice. Jesus asks us some questions and we have to say yes or no. Our thinking starts in that Old Testament reading with some of the closing verses from the book of Joshua. After a whole generation of wandering, the new nation has finally become established. And Joshua, as the leader, gives the people a very stark choice. This is the kind of altar call moment, if you like. He says, today, you've got to decide. Will you follow the Lord? Or will you adopt the gods of the nations around you? I've made my mind up. I'm going to follow the Lord. But what about you? And the people very quickly say, oh, yes, yes, we'll follow God. That's a good idea. Now, if we were reading a lion paperback or a word paperback or a Kingsway paperback account of a 20th century evangelistic rally, we would then hear that they prayed the prayer, went to see a counsellor and went home. But that isn't what we hear in this story. Joshua basically says to them, are you sure? Because this is no light undertaking. It is going to be incredibly demanding. This God will not tolerate any rivals. Now here's the bit that struck me this week. What Joshua says is, this God will not forgive sins. That's not quite how I understand God, but that is what Joshua said to the people. This God will punish you if you turn away. As I pondered those words, it really struck me how often when somebody is on that journey towards faith, do we actually say, just before you make your mind up, do you know what it is you're undertaking? You see, I think we get so excited that somebody wants to make a decision to follow Jesus that we fail to mention that discipleship has a cost. So Joshua cautioned the people. He said, are you sure? And they said, yep, we're sure. So you'd think that would be it then, wouldn't you? But no. 
Joshua asks them a third question. He says, will you be witnesses for each other to this decision? Will you hold one another accountable for the choice you make? I've done my share of stewarding and uh, such like at evangelistic events. I've trained as a counsellor with the Louis Pillau thingamajig way back when. But it seems to me that one thing I was never taught was to stand with those people who made a choice and support them. We kind of shoved that back and said, go to a church, they'll, they'll look after you. And actually, in churches, do we do that? Do we say together, I've heard your promise in baptism, in church membership, whatever it is, and I will stand with you in helping you to keep that promise the best you can. I have a feeling that actually we're not so good at that third stage. Good at telling people the promises of eternity. Good at telling people they need to make a decision. Not so good at that last stage of saying, fabulous, you've made the decision, we'll walk with you. I have a suspicion if people knew about the cost of discipleship, they might be a little less quick to make those professions of faith. But perhaps when they did, they would be better able to carry on in the reality of life. And so it is then that we who have spent a number of weeks looking at Christian doctrine reach our own decision point. Today we have to make our own minds up what we're going to do about our discipleship, whether that's a first-time commitment or an ongoing commitment. Perhaps you're thinking about baptism. Perhaps you're thinking about church membership. And perhaps today is the day to make a decision. Perhaps you want to renew your promise to walk with Christ. Or perhaps, quite frankly, you're just happy going along with life as it is. But today is a day to decide. Today is the so what question. The what next. I wonder what you will choose. Oh, but before you decide, taking my leaf out of Joshua's book, let's listen to some of what Jesus said. Or think about what some of Jesus said. Because what is involved in that commitment is not just a nice, easy ride to eternal bliss, but a commitment to a challenging life of discipleship. Three people, or three stories we heard, about people who came to Jesus and wanted to follow him. Firstly, a wealthy and morally upright young man who'd heard about Jesus. He'd listened to Jesus and decided that he too wanted what Jesus offered. So he came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to receive eternal life? Jesus didn't give him a nice, neat formula answer. He said, go away, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then follow me. So here's the thing. Everybody in this room, on a worldwide scale, is wealthy. And as far as I can tell, everyone in this room is a law-abiding citizen. 
So actually, we are in the same place as that young man. And so when Jesus says that to that young man, we have to listen carefully. Are you willing to give everything you have in order to transform the lives of the most vulnerable? Now, I could do what other preachers have done and continue to do and say, well, of course, this was Christ's call to that man in that place and and he'll never ask that of us. And probably for most of us that is true, but not for everybody. What about missionaries? What about overseas aid workers? What about ministers? What about charity workers? Because to some extent, every one of those lives out a yes to that question. Think of a missionary doctor who could be earning £100,000 in the UK, who gets about £15,000 as a BMS missionary. No guarantee of housing when they retire. No nice pension. Little pension, but no nice pension. They say yes to God's call to do that. So, question for all of us. Would you sell your second home to follow Jesus? Would you let go the security of your job, your pension, your savings, your hopes and your dreams? Because it may be that that question is asked of you. Or what about the second one? Having recognised that Jesus is the Christ is not enough on its own. Jesus tells his followers that his life is now headed towards execution and beyond. And he says, that's what I ask of you. Forget about your social status. Forget about your reputation. Walk the path of the convicted criminal who is despised and rejected and spat upon. That's what take up your cross means. And not just once if we go with Luke, but every single day. Not one lot of insults for our faith, but a willingness to constantly be insulted for our faith. You see, there's a lot in the news at the moment about Christians demanding their rights, the right to wear a cross to work. Sorry, that's got no basis in Christian faith. That's all about fashion. The right to do this, the right to do that. And what Jesus says is, forget your rights. Walk that path with me. Would we do that? Would we be prepared to be thrown out of the establishment be condemned as traitors, to be ridiculed or arrested for what we believe? Would we allow our reputation to go? Would we accept a criminal record if that's what it took to follow Jesus? Christians in the Far East and the former communist bloc countries walked that path. Christians who choose to sit outside naval bases choose that path. Christians who work in defence as chaplains choose that path. 
So it's not sounding quite so nice now, is it, this discipleship? But Jesus hasn't finished. He goes into a village and the people come up to him and say, we'd like to follow you. And he says, well, if you do, you have to choose a kind of rootlessness. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, but I've got no fixed abode. Following me means being willing to leave your home and go where I go. And then Jesus said to one of them, you, come and follow me. I wonder what he saw in that man. But the man came up with an excuse. He said, "Um, well, actually, first, let me go and bury my father. We need to get a first century mindset to understand what is going on here. This man's father had not just died. He was not waiting to go to a funeral. Let me first bury my father is a euphemism for not yet, one day. And then another person comes along and says to Jesus, well, I'd like to come and follow you, but first, let me say cheerio to my family. Seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? Just to say, I'm off. After all, Elisha got to do that. Jesus' response seems quite harsh. Not interested in half-hearted commitment. That means you're always looking over your shoulder where you've come from. Always distracted by something else or someone else. This is all or nothing. Oh dear. What do we do with all of that? You see, it could be that somebody has sold us along the line this vision of eternal bliss, stressing the promises of eternity about the release from death and grief, the promise of a reconciled creation where all races, nations, tribes and tongues are united. But maybe they forgot to tell us that we have to live in the here and now. Perhaps somebody preached us a gospel of prosperity, of a God who will shower us with material blessings, provided we sign up to the right statement of faith, and very neatly omitted the scary stuff about giving it all away. Perhaps we feel that that price is too high, that discipleship is not what we want to sign up to after all. Or maybe... We are willing, like the ancient Israelites, like the people who did walk with Jesus, very tentatively to say yes. So how can that be good news? How can this demanding Christ be part of a God who is love? How can such radical discipleship ever be possible? I think the answer lies in the end of the Joshua story and at the heart of an authentic Baptist self-understanding. If one among us follows a call of Christ on their life that is so demanding, sacrificing status or reputation wealth or the local family support, then we as witnesses 
have to stand with them and support them practically and prayerfully. Imagine, if you can, such a community in which each one is able to live a life dedicated to the gospel of Christ. It's not some kind of crazy commune. It's the kind of thing we hear of in the book of Acts about the early church. Just a few verses from Acts 2. All the believers continued together in close fellowship and shared their belongings with one another. They would sell their property and possessions and distribute the money among them all according to what each one needed. Day after day, they met as a group in the temple. They had meals together in their homes, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And every day, the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. Have to be in it together. Nobody can do it alone. But then, at the end of all I have said, so what? Today, as individuals and together, we are asked the same question. To choose this day who you will follow. Jesus Christ, or some other deity, or ideology. Over to you. Let us join together in prayer. First in our minds today, Lord God, we commend to your loving care all those who are suffering from traumatic effects of warfare, of tragedy on the roads, or of prejudice and violence, as in Toulouse. Thank you, gracious God, for the security we take for granted and for the wide variety of activities and events that claim our attention day by day and mingle with routine and personal concerns to form the rich tapestry of our lives. We seek the guidance of your Holy Spirit to know how to divide our time between the more and the less important things in life, And thank you for the memories of past experiences that help to guide us in our choices. We offer to you now our choice to come here this morning, not only to worship you and thank you for the things that enrich our lives, but also to ask that we may learn more about the Christian way and our personal pilgrimage. And we want to pray for those who have made quite different choices. For those committed with integrity to a religion different from ours. That whatever their concept of God, they may, like us, yearn for justice and peace. 
and may come to honour the kind of love revealed to us by Jesus. We pray for those committed to false ideologies, misled by propaganda and deluded by visions of a secular society whose God is science or materialism, wealth or power, for those concerned only with self-advancement, heedless of the needs of their fellow citizens, for those deriving satisfaction from their exploitation or abuse of others. We pray for those committed only to political action, imagining that this can solve all society's problems and meet the deep needs of the human heart. We pray for those who struggle for survival in conditions of poverty, disease, addiction or warfare that make commitment to any ideal a luxury they cannot allow themselves. We thank you for all who are committed to humanitarian causes and pray that as they serve their fellow men, women and children, they may come to know the one whose divine mission was to be a servant. We thank you for all whose commitment to this church over nearly 130 years has shaped what it is today and what, by your grace, it can be in the future. Lord God, hear these, our heartfelt personal prayers, which we bring you in Jesus' name as we reflect on the words of Albert Schweitzer. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old, by the lakeside. He came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow me. He sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands. And to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself. In the toils, the conflicts, they shall pass through in his fellowship. As an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their experience who he is. Amen. From where we are to where you call us to be, lead us on. From promised words to lived discipleship, lead us on. In wealth and in poverty, in privilege and in adversity, in strength and 
in infirmity, lead us on, that we might be worthy disciples of Christ our Lord. Thank you.